0: I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand
1: an exegetical
2: approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? I know.
1: Welcome to the podcast, folks. This is Theology Unplugged. I'm joined here in studio with Tim, JJ, and Sam. We are excited this morning, afternoon, evening, whenever you're listening to this Uh, To continue our discussion about spiritual gifts About the charismatic issues That we have been covering Um, And I think we can just get right into it Uh, Thank you guys I just want to say a quick thank you all For continuing to listen to us And continuing to support us in such a way It's great to get here in studio And it'd be fun even if these microphones Weren't set up in front of us Just to have this time And it's really a, a nice time to have Discussion, you know, and sometimes we get involved in our study so much, or or I'm teaching, I'm preparing to teach, and so I'm answering questions, and there's just sometimes not enough time just to sit down and discuss some things. And I hope this comes across as everybody, because, folks, this is unplugged, and this is what it's supposed to be guys just sitting around a table discussing theology. And I hope that's what it comes across as, and I hope that's what we keep our spirit and our intent, because it's sometimes easy to get formal.
2: It's pretty nice that we happen to all actually like each other. Yeah, uh, well,
3: usually <laughs> <laughs> we have a most of us have a common bond of for Indian food as well, so we yeah, like to uh, share a meal together as well.
1: Well, it's it's the. Um, the Ephesians, where he says, uh, "Put up with one one another in love." You know, the, the bearing with that—that that word is used as putting up with the stench of one another. And, uh, so we we put up with the stench of one another. It's good practice for our Christian yeah. disciplines as well.
3: It is. It is, and I think we have two broadcasts left after this one is that correct
1: of our series uh, are you making a prediction here
3: well I'm just uh, I'm saying we're, we're approaching the, the end of this and we've we've really enjoyed it and continue I think the next few will be next few so I'll put that out there yeah. as a potential maybe there'll be three or so uh, and then we're already excited to move into the next uh, topic that we've talked about yeah
1: I guess it's good to let our audience know we're getting close to the end of the charismatic series I don't know if this has gone as long as the uh, series on Cal Calvinism, but uh, yeah. Back up, folks, and listen to the one on Cal- if you've just joined us. We've got a great one on an invitation to Calvinism uh, that came before this, and lots of other things in our ar- archives. So. We
3: spent some time talking about arrogance before that, I think, and trying to think of arrogance, yeah. we've uh, we've we've been doing this every week for over a year now, which is really weird with Sam, right? Yeah, JJ has yeah.
1: been with us for about four or five months.
3: Yeah, and so it's uh, it just seems weird and bizarre that we've been doing this this long together, but it's been it's been great, and we look forward to. Hey, I have been uh, doing it since 2005,
1: and I did it by myself for a while, and that you wasn't did. fun. It wasn't very <laughs> unplugged.
3: Yeah, it's kind of weird for you to have a long conversation with yourself. Yeah.
1: All right, guys, listen, we're we're continuing our discussion. Focus here is. The charismatic issues, arguments for continuationism and arguments for cessationism. Um, Last time uh, we talked about this, We, we began to talk about some arguments for continuationism and for cessationism. But but let's continue on with that and JJ. There's something that I wanted to pick up on last time that uh, you, you had dealt with, but I think I'll deal with that whenever I get to the arguments for continuation or for cessationism. But again, folks, here, here's the deal: in the studio, me, Tim on one side, Sam, JJ on the other. Literally, we got a line right here to, uh, that we cannot cross. JJ,
3: you just crossed the line. Come on, man.
1: JJ and Sam are both. Me. Are both not only just believe that the supernatural supernatural gifts. I almost said sign gifts. It just comes out. I'm sorry, like a Porky Pig moment there. Yeah, <laughs> supernatural <laughs> s- 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 sign gifts. Uh, the supernatural gifts such as tongues, healing, um, prophecy. Those are the three main ones that we've dealt with. But you've also got. Uh, uh, miracles and I don't know what else we might throw in there, word of wisdom, word of knowledge but you guys believe that they not only are continuing but should be pursued and practiced within the church Tim and I on the other side I am I may be less uh, than Tim on this uh, in the sense that I'm just not a charismatic, I'm not a practicing charismatic, I, I've never spoken in tongues, never uh, pursued these gifts in the sense of of anything other than prayerful, you know coming before God and saying, God, you know, if these are gifts, please convince me of them that uh, continue on. Uh, Tim is a hardcore secessionist. He prays against you guys and and prays that you guys will cease to exist.
3: That is so untrue. I do uh, do pray that God would open their eyes, though. No, I'm just kidding. I love you guys. Awkward silence. Now, you guys, I
1: want you guys to let's now think of arguments on each side now, Sam. I think you want to kind of give an overview of what you would see as the strongest arguments, biblical arguments, for continuationism. So you guys, both of you, do that. Me and Tim are going to drill you.
3: Well, how about? I think we should start. I, I think you should start, Michael. On uh, Tip for tab, you, you've back just read. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, you should give one, and then Sam should give one back.
1: But Sam likes the grandeur of being able to just. Go overview
0: and throw them all at us Okay Well then You're saying I like to dominate this (laughs) broadcast
3: Well then I I think Michael at least you should start And not feel like uh, you get the last word
0: Man You are not (laughs) on my side Scoot over
3: Dude I'm on your side I'm just trying to I'm just trying to keep it real Keep it
1: it, uh, even Alright well let's just go back and forth And see what happens So that gives you
3: the potential Of having the last word we'll 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 let
1: the spirit decide Sam, arguments. Best argument, best arguments for continuationism from the Bible. These listeners here love the Bible. Mm-hmm. That's their
0: final authority. That's what we got to get to. Yeah, And, of course, we, uh, as, as a little bit of an introduction, uh, would refer our listeners back to the uh, blog post because uh, we each wrote articles uh, detailing uh, far more than we can now what the... Reasons are that we, uh, for why we embrace the system that we do. So, just very quickly, in a a, truly in a a short span of time, when I read the New Testament, I see the exercise of all the gifts of the Spirit being portrayed as what Paul, Peter, John, Luke, Mark, James, and all the uh, biblical authors would conceive as being normal Christian living. Um, that this is how the church is designed to operate in the power of the Holy Spirit for the building up of the body of Christ. So uh, I read in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul giving instruction to average Christians in Corinth, You know, shopkeepers, housewives, common laborers, not describing apostolic powers, but just the ordinary believer to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, Tongues, interpretation, prophecy, words of knowledge and wisdom, miracles, faith, discerning of spirits, and the like. No indication by Paul that this was somehow a unique expression reserved for a a special company of apostles, but that this was the ordinary expression of what regular daily church life is designed to be. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, Paul seems to suggest that these gifts will function until the time of the second advent, when we will enter into that uh, that experience of face to face encounter with God Himself. Ephesians four eleven and following, uh, the, that the Lord has placed uh, gifts within the body, and He gives five representative ones, one of which is prophet, another of which is apostle, that are designed to build up the body until we all attain unto the unity of the faith, which. Uh, I think the church is still uh, far short of and will only come about at the final coming of Christ. so I believe the gifts are operative until that time first corinthians fourteen thirty nine very explicit command, do not forbid speaking in tongues. So if somebody's going to do uh, forbid the speaking in tongues they they need to have pretty good solid biblical grounds for that. I would think of uh, acts two, day of Pentecost. again, Peter describing what seems to be the normal experience during the new covenant age of the spirit. Um, I think of the multiplicity of purposes for which God has given uh, these spiritual manifestations, preeminent among which, of course, is edification or the building up of the body, something that we all still very much need. Um, And then lastly, uh, I would just say uh, the absence, in my opinion, of any explicit affirmation that the gifts would at some point in the life of the church cease or no longer be given by God. Uh, I just don't see that anywhere in the New Testament. So collectively, I think these are the primary arguments that I would appeal to. Um, to And then, as I mentioned in my, at the end of my blog post, I don't think experience is an argument for or against anything, but I, I have had experience of all the gifts, uh, not just dozens but hundreds of occasions over the years, uh, that confirm in uh, remarkable ways the validity uh, of what uh, of of their operation today. Now, at the same time, I've seen probably hundreds of uh, counterfeits and uh, uh, instances of abuse of what people claimed were these gifts, but in fact were not. But I don't allow those abuses to govern my thinking. They they are not given priority of place in deciding in my mind what is or is not valid today. I really do want to ground that decision ultimately in scripture itself. Tim? Yeah. What do you have to say to that?
1: You Chris You No. Know, no. Did he get you?
3: No. I Why? mean I well so I mean th- I those were all biblical
1: arguments. You believe the Bible is your final authority. Yeah. I mean what what what's the deal?
3: You know, so I I definitely fully I mean as in previous broadcasts for sure, um I'm seeing this in Scripture. I'm definitely not closing my eyes to seeing the way that that the Spirit is supernaturally equipping the church at this time. Um, uh, For sure, we have had, uh, you know, if you go back in the broadcast, I think especially the discussions on prophecy and on healing – Uh, that, first of all, we would uh, see right now differently in how that is carried out, especially with prophecy and healing, where, where we'd say, okay, you're calling this gift the gift of healing, you're calling this the gift of prophecy and how you're carrying it out. Um, but so so but, but we would say i 'm not so sure if that 's what the biblical writers were talking about when they were speaking of those two gifts, particularly, especially uh, the gift of prophecy and being uh, looking in a much different way than it looked uh, in the Old Testament time, which was the the view of those the writer that 's what the writers knew uh, as they were writing this um, at the beginning of the New testament era but um, what what I would mainly say, and and Michael, I mean, I think that your your argument, I definitely like the way that you argued some of the things that you did in your post. But um, you know, I think it is it is fair in some ways to I, I think it is fair to liken it as you likened the ending of the writing of scripture. So uh, you know, in nowhere in the Bible as well does it ever say. Uh, you know, the writing of scripture is now over, it was just happening at that time and it just ended at that time, and the church just knew it ended at that time. And the, the writing of scripture never said, uh, the writers never spoke to that and it just happened. And so, so I, think, I do think that many of the arguments for cessationism and especially hard cessationism historically have been uh, poor arguments biblically. And uh, and so and and I think it's that huge issue is is this descriptive of the first century or is this prescriptive of the way the church should always function at every place at every time and um, and so my main argument even though I do differ with Sam in the way that he is explaining when he points to something and says there that is the gift of prophecy you've just seen it uh, in the 21st century. Uh, I, uh, that goes back to this discussion we had when we were speaking about that gift. But uh, to say here are the, these gifts that you are reading of in the New Testament, um, you know, I, I'm mainly looking at those and saying, yes, I, I see that that happened too. Do I believe that God is just as supernatural as as He was then? Yes. Can he can he work in the lives of people just as much as He did then? Yes. Um, our, what we are reading here in First Corinthians 14 and 13 I mean mainly I do recognize that it is mainly an argument of silence but so is the closing of the canon too and we, we, we hold that just as strongly as we do the closing of the canon so for me I think that is the, the strongest argument guys um which was a big part of your post that you wrote about.
1: Yeah, it was kind of a precursor to it all. Just, um, but let me let me respond just a moment. And looking at both uh, JJ and Sam here, um, here's what I would say is that whenever you present that, Sam, it's compelling. Really is. I mean, to me, it's compelling. Whenever I read what you write on it, whenever I read the Bible, I mean, you go through the Bible and it is. And 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 in the end. It is a matter for me, and I said this in my post, it's a matter for me almost of a, of a post hoc type of approach. It's it's like if I was to read um, and, uh, the Upper Room Discourse, what have you asked for in the Father's name, I will give to you, right? Uh, or what have you asked for in my name, I will give to you. And you, that can be interpreted a lot of ways afterwards, but beforehand it just seems very clear that this is saying that whenever you ask for something in the name of Jesus, you're going to get it. So you ask for a Ferrari, you get it. You ask for you know, something good for health, you get it but it's only after the fact through the experience that causes you to go back and look at that passage again and say well what does it mean in his name and and how is it that basically how is it that we can say now that this means something different than what it seemed to mean at the very beginning because experience has caused me to change my view on it and so I'll be up front with you guys and say this, you guys already know this, so it's nothing new. You've read my post on it, but but I'll, I'll be up front with you and say, whenever I look to the experience, my own experience and the experience of church history, I am forced to go back and to say, wait a minute, though Sam has just presented a case for the continuation of the gifts, and though it seems compelling, it cannot be what he says it is. It must have ceased because nobody has experienced it in the way that I'm setting up. Now, we're going to get to church history, and I don't mean to jump ahead to that, and you guys are probably going to want to speak on that. I look forward to that discussion. Tim especially looks forward to that discussion. Um, But you, you must understand, whenever I look at this, I start to look and say, okay, what are some of the other ways that we can read this? What are some of the things that we can see now that maybe?" Help us to to keep with the authority of Scripture, and not just say Paul thought it was going to continue, and then oh, and and he he really taught it was going to continue, and it didn't. And so whenever I look to certain passages, take Acts chapter two for example, whenever Peter gives his um, Pentecost sermon, remember uh, tongues come down, violent what rushing wind, everybody comes around, tries to figure out in bewilderment what happened. Peter says, this is what the prophet Joel said was going to happen. Why do you look so surprised? And he goes through and he says, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men dream dreams. I mean, we go into all the stuff that we're talking about here. And you guys use that and say, that is characteristic of what the church age should be. Peter is simply saying, this is the new age that has dawned. This is the new age now that we are moving into a time where prophecy will be prevalent you've used the uh term which i like sam the democratization of the gifts at this point no longer is it just a prophet out there but it's prophet within us within the church within the body many many people young men old men uh women children maybe children i don't know (laughs) getting a little bit too out of hand here um will prophesy However, now here's me looking back upon that and saying, yeah, that seems to be what Peter thinks. That that seems to be what Peter is teaching. However, then he goes on and talks about uh, the sun turning black and the moon turning red. And I say, oh, wait a minute. Is that supposed to be characteristic of the church age? That these types of things happening in the celestial bodies? Or is he not being literal or, or what? But what I begin to see is that peter is correct just like all the biblical writers are correct but sometimes the biblical writers are correct to the degree that they understand everything that is going on and their 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 statements are almost in seed form Uh, is it at this time you're restoring your kingdom did all of a sudden he not realize that it wasn't at this time you know in acts chapter two acts chapter one he's wondering whether jesus is restoring his kingdom right then acts chapter two is he got it all figured out and so I see this kind of development within the thought of the apostles, most evidenced in this, that I believe that they thought that Christ was coming in their day. Would you guys agree that the apostles believed that Christ was um, coming in their day?
0: No, I wouldn't put it in that, those terms. I would say they were certainly open to the possibility that it might happen. But to say they believed that Christ would come in their day may be a little bit bold. They certainly wrote uh, with the... Uh, with the belief that cert- it was entirely possible paul did we uh, undoubtedly so um, and i'm reading between the lines i'm not trying to say they taught
1: that okay because yeah, that, that we need to be careful get in we're not yeah. saying
0: but otherwise we would have to say that they were in error but yeah, certainly yeah. they believed that uh, the potential existed for the lord jesus to return um bodily, physically, and visibly within the span of their lifetime. Sir. Can I read between the lines of Peter's Pentecost sermon and
1: say that he was, had an expectation that Jesus was coming soon and that this church age wasn't going to be you know, 2,000 years? Well,
3: I don't think he had any reason not to think that way. I mean, just as well as we have, it might be 1,000 years from now that Jesus comes back, but we have an expectation that he will hopefully
2: come back tomorrow, and, there... and we
3: live that way.
2: There's some hermeneutical slipperiness with even pursuing that line of questioning, only because the example from the Gospels is one of many sort of disciple foibles that have been captured for us. You know, don't go to Jerusalem. You know, let's send fire down in this town. So it's very obvious in that question and response that they're the ones in error, and Jesus is about to educate them. When Peter stands up, he's speaking authoritatively as an apostle. I think it's very prescriptive. He's telling him, this is what it looks like to repent. This is what God's doing. Let me explain to you these phenomena. So, so I think we have to say that regardless of what Peter personally was expecting, he's, he's, he's prescriptively describing the function of what God is pouring out and, and, and its duration and its usage. And there's all sorts of wonderful redemptive historical markers within this passage since we're talking about it. He says, you know, what's going to be the time frame of, of this thing that's happening, this fulfillment of this promise that was given to Joel? He says in verse 20, Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So, so again, it looks like he's talking about the church age. Then you look at verse 33, and he says, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured it out. You're seeing and hearing it happen. And then you look in verse 39, and he says, this promise, what promise? Well, the promise of the Spirit. Originating where? Joel. And what's it for? It's for you, for your children, and for all who are far off. For what duration? Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Again, explicitly seems like he's talking about the church age, and he seems blithely unconcerned with delineating between the gifts like one would cut sheep out of a herd of sheep and say, now be careful and remember that some of these aren't going to last for that duration, and others will, and, and let me make that distinction. The only distinction Peter ever seems concerned to make is in his own epistle, chapter 4 of uh, First Peter, he says in verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's stewards of varied grace, either whether you're speaking or serving. So, so again, it's so funny that in the cessationist continuationist debate, we're constantly wrangling over miraculous versus non miraculous. And Peter's saying categories, yeah, there's categories, serving and speaking. What's the duration till the great and terrible day of the Lord?
1: Is the is the sun turn black anytime? Is the moon turn
0: red? I mean, is that characteristic of the church well, age? We're we're going to – this is going to derail our focus here because I happen uh. <laughs> to believe that what he's describing there is what happened in 70 A.D. with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And uh-huh. I think he's appealing to Old Testament – Sounds like a post hoc
1: argument to me. Because you, you don't experience the sun turning black
0: <laughs> and the moon turning red, you have to find some other explanation for that. I'm just saying. I'm saying the explanation <laughs> is in the Old Testament passages to which that alludes and refers in which celestial phenomena are used to describe great uh, geopolitical and national chaos and collapse on Earth. So I think when... But again, this is getting us into eschatology and away from pneumatology. We want to talk about... The gifts of the Spirit. I, I do have one follow-up question. Hold on, hold on, mind.
1: hold on, though. I don't want to. I don't want to go away from that because it says in verse nineteen, Acts chapter two, "I will show wonders in the heavens above." Now, this is a common characteristic that the that the apostles acts continues to go back to is the wonders and and signs of the apostles that they were performing, and so I mean to to see Peter is seeing it as one thing here, and then see Luke is continuing it on later on with signs and wonders being referenced again and it having no connection with this is very difficult for me.
2: Before, I mean, yes, rabbit it's a rabbit trail to even even begin talking about amillennialism or premillennialism. Oh, no, but he
0: describes right. in verse 20 what he's talking about. The wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth are blood and fire, vapor of smoke, sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. I happen to believe that he's talking there primarily about um, the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, and he's using Old Testament apocalyptic language which describes celestial upheaval as a way of referring to earthly, political, and national chaos and collapse. But again, that's...
2: Regardless of whether or not you're an amillennialist, verse 17 is clear. He says, in the last days. Okay, And then again in First Peter 4, he says, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. So there's well, a I- sense in which he sees the gifts operative in the period between Jesus' ascension into heaven, And his his coming, visible return.
3: Well, I mean, and that's what verse 20 says. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes the great magnificent day. So he's basically saying this is what it's going to be like right before the Lord well, comes so, back.
1: So then Sam is saying that it ended well, in AD 70. That, so you're that's, a secessionist? Well, that's why I'm land. doing
2: an end run around Sam because I'm saying we can argue about verse 20, but verse 17 is clear. The last days did not terminate in 70 AD regardless of whether or not okay, you're Okay, either a, way, that's not
1: the point of my argument here,
0: okay? I'm going to take one more step here, okay? well, I, I, But I do have a follow-up to everything you said and it sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that your principal argument for cessationism is your own experience yes and so so you know for 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 all the many times that uh, we who uh, are charismatics have been accused of being a people with an experience in search of a theology it sounds as if um your experience is the primary determining factor, or I should say your lack of experience, or maybe the experience being a bad one, uh, or what you perceive to be the experience of others within the span of 2,000 years of church history. Um, and I'm just simply calling people, as I would call you all, as, as I have throughout this series, to allow the biblical text to shape and to govern and to energize how you go about living and praying, and what you ask God to do, and what you are willing and committed to cultivate in the life of the church, rather than basing it on what people have or have not uh, experienced. I mean, if we want to, if we had enough time in this series and we wanted to match um, experience for experience, I could I could sit here and uh, and again I'm not saying this to try to I'm not trying to pull rank or anything. But I could cite several hundred instances of profoundly accurate prophetic words, numerous instances of supernatural healings and miracles that I've seen and, and that others have witnessed as well. And so I, I would I'm not charismatic because of those, not in the least. I I came to embrace my view without having witnessed that kind of phenomena. But it certainly is confirming. And then, of course, and I know we're going to get into this when we talk about church history. I would simply ask um, you all to answer the question, what kind of experience in the life of the church would there have to have been documented to persuade you that, in fact, the gifts are still operative in the life of the body of Christ? Uh, In other words, what, uh, what kind of phenomena would we have to point to in the life of the body of Christ that would constitute sufficient evidence, experiential evidence, for you to say, hey, it looks as if in fact what is described in the New Testament has continued uh, in the life of, of, of the body of Christ. Maybe not consistently at all times to the same degree or intensity, but we certainly have verifiable examples. So that's the question that I want to lay on the table that I trust that we will Address when we talk about um, church history, yeah,
3: and and I think we will too, and and I think they 'll be great I think for for me, like my wife and I, we get to every Sunday we sit down with our kids, and my kids are young, but we sit down every week and we write down, how have we seen God, our supernatural, living God. Clearly work in our lives this past week, and so we keep and we always write down five or six ways that we've seen God work. And so, what when I I, I don't discount your experience in any way because because I know that we have a living supernatural God that works in our midst, who 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 gives us uh, insight, gives us wisdom. We pray for wisdom. We're supposed to pray for wisdom, insight. That we we beg God to heal people, and we see Him heal people. Um, but. Uh, What I would say, though, is I don't discount your experience, but what I do with your experience is different than what you do with your experience. What I do with your experience is I say – God is working supernaturally in your midst because uh, you know He loves you. You're following Him, and uh, and He is just working supernaturally because of His grace. He's working supernaturally in my midst because of His grace. But what I don't do with your experience is say, therefore, every church should have prophets and every church should have people with the gift of healing. Um, and so that's that's going to be the difference: is that I'm I'm affirming your experience, but because I'm affirming my experience too. But what I'm not saying is that. I think every church needs prophets, and every ch- every church needs a living God, but I don't know if every church needs a prophet or a healer.
2: There's a well, sense in which you can acknowledge God's sovereignty. You can see the ways in which he's working. And we're still not addressing Paul's clear command to engage in a cooperating functional relationship to his sovereignty, where he wants to draw you into his purposes. So he's doing something in the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts, but when he tells Philip to run up alongside the chariot and ask him what he's reading, mm-hmm. he's now caused Philip to engage in his sovereign purposes in an experiential way that involves obedience to something risky.
3: Which I totally agree. So and, so and, that's so, what I think and when we're in Corinthians,
2: when he says I, I, you need to earnestly desire these things it should give us pause because it means that that it can become a self-fulfilling hermeneutic that if we resist this command then then there might be a possibility that we may find what we're looking for because paul seems to see that think that
0: it's very important the one as he says to timothy fan into flame these gifts of god that have been given to you and, mm-hmm. and let me just say tim i understand exactly what you're saying the question you know you've raised is or the point you've made is you don't necessarily think that um, these kinds of phenomena or experiences are God's desire for every church. And I would just simply say that the only way that we, that as far as I'm concerned, that we can determine what God's desire is for every church is the New Testament. And when I read the New Testament, I read of the operation of these kinds of gifts of the Spirit in the church at Rome, Thessalonica, Ephesus, um Uh, Antioch, uh, Jerusalem. It seems as if uh, throughout the broad spectrum of cities and local churches that are portrayed for us in the New Testament, that this is uh, Galatia, Galatians 3 5. It does not he who works miracles among you do it by uh, hearing of, uh, uh, by deeds of the flesh or deeds of the law or by the hearing with faith. So it just seems as if the broad spectrum of representative churches in the New Testament, that these sorts of phenomena were a normal part of Christian life individually and corporately in the body of Christ. And so I'm going to have to have some pretty persuasive textual reasons not to believe that what we have there is a description of what God would desire to be normal in the life of his body in the present day, as well. However, all right, let me get back because I still have, I'm still not done with Acts chapter two.
1: I, I've got i got good stuff on Acts chapter two to go through, um, but I keep on getting interrupted. Well, well just, I, I was the, wanting the to, you to the argument is getting diluted. No, well,
3: uh, I was wanting to respond to Sam, but, no, 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 but you're cutting to me you off. To Sam, who's <laughs> going to respond to JJ? No, no, no.
1: First of all, first of all, let me let me let me say this: experience is important. Experience is an interpretive guide.
3: It's We're, not the it, it's interpretive. to be. Here.
1: Otherwise, there is no analogy of language, and there is no analogy of being for us to even relate to God and understand what is being said. When he says, rejoice, we've got to have an experience of rejoice in order to understand what that means. I totally
0: agree. I just think it's instructive that uh, people should no longer go around saying that charismatics uh, believe what they do because of their Oh, experience. definitely, definitely. And I agree 100% I agree there, with I that think.
1: too. And
3: I think biblical, I mean, I think Sam is showing that, that uh, especially, you know, the, the way that Sam is communicating this is very biblical, you know, and we can, I mean, I think a lot of our discussion will enter into the Regula Fide and a lot all right, of discipleship. i got something here. All
1: right, The Christ says, Ye of little faith, why do you worry about what you need? Who of you can worry, by worry, add a single hour, hour to his life? And if God has clothed the grass, which is alive today, gone tomorrow, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? Do not say, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles seek these things. But the kingdom of heaven is first. Seek him, and these things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow for it to take care of itself. You read that today. And you can, through your experience, say, God has taken care of us. He has clothed us and he he has fed us. And therefore, we read it through our culture. We read it through our understanding. However, the Christians that are in third world countries who are losing their children because, and there are Christians, believers, who are not being clothed, who are not being fed, who are dying in that circumstance, look at this and they'll say, either I've got to deny that passage or I've gonna interpret it a different way because God does not seem to be providing the same way that it seems so evident in Matthew chapter six that he will. And so what I'm saying is that sometimes we do look at our experience, look at church history experience, and go back and look at those passages again, interpret it through them because we must. Otherwise, you know, we, we've got but I, yeah, I agree
0: with you, Michael. I mean, everybody acknowledges that what Jesus is saying there is a general principle about the goodness and the provision of God for those who seek his kingdom first. Nobody would deny that there aren't exceptions, uh, uh, martyrs, and those who are called upon to suffer greatly for the gospel's sake. I mean, let's not forget that the same Jesus who said that in Matthew 6. Later, I believe it is in Matthew 10, said, I tell you whom to fear. Don't fear him who can kill your body, I, but fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell. So Jesus is saying, yeah, uh, Satan can take your life. I mean, he can he can destroy your body. Uh, look what he did to Job. But that doesn't invalidate the general principle of God's gracious provision in Matthew 6. So we have to read passages like that within the broader uh, context of everything that Jesus said that we can expect uh, when we follow him. I mean, Paul said um, those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I mean, here's Paul in prison in 2 Timothy 1 talking about Timothy, suffer with me for the sake of the gospel. Do you think Timothy wrote back and said, Paul? Why are you uh, barely getting by with food and drink, and you don't have much to keep you warm in that Roman jail? Didn't Jesus promise us in Matthew 6 that he would make provision for us? I think I don't think Paul would have seen his experiences in any way in conflict with what Jesus promised there.
1: Well, no, definitely not. I mean, in jail, but being clothed and all that. Let's say that church history and our experience has put us in such a position to be able to say that nobody's ever been hungry as a Christian. Nobody's ever been unclothed as a Christian. Today, we'd be looking at that and saying, see, look... Jesus' words throughout history have proven themselves because we no Christian in the history of the world has ever been hungry. No Christian has ever been unclothed. We would look at that and say, Yeah, that's it. We're taking it literally. And so we're just seeing through our experience and
0: taking something in a <clears throat> certain way but because see, of our but experience. But I don't even I agree. I agree with your understanding of experience. I'm simply saying you don't need experience to understand what Jesus was saying in Matthew 6. Just read other things Jesus said. Just read what Paul said, and we realize that that statement in Matthew 6 is not some sort of ironclad guarantee that no believer will ever go without food or clothing or experience uh, phys- robust physical health. We don't yeah. need experience to tell us that we shouldn't read that passage in some sort of 100% ironclad literal guarantee that we'll never suffer from a lack of these things. For our
2: listeners, you might be getting lost. Michael, you've tried to find a passage that… lost. I've been… That- Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Michael suggested that there's a, a passage that gives us a hint that our experience has to inform Jesus's words and all I agree that with Sam, all that Sam is mm-hmm. replying is that the text itself informs Jesus's words and that and 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 that's where we would have to respond that we need to find another example because because if no one in church history suffered, we'd still have a problem, which would be all these well, places in the text really that tell us that we're praying suffer. in
1: Jesus' name. I mean, sure. We, we go back to that, and we mm-hmm. see it through our experience and see that we've prayed for things in Jesus' name that haven't come about, and so we understand it differently. Right. But that.
0: I think I can account for uh, why every th- time I ask for something in Jesus' name and I don't necessarily get it, I have other biblical texts that tell me why that is the case. Even no. aside from the issue of experience. But you have to find those now
1: because of that. You have to find those because of your experience.
2: Or you could have paid attention to what it said before you had the experience and not had the letdown. So I mean the, the text anticipates our needs. It's it's sufficient. All right, but, but
0: but just let me say, don't I don't want our listeners to be confused here. I agree with you about the role of experience. It does confirm, it does shape how we read text. It does, it does govern, to a certain extent, our expectations for what we think God will or won't do. I'm not denying the reality of it. I've had profound experiences. I know you have too, uh, or maybe the lack thereof. And those do affect how we read the Word of God. And we do want our experience to measure up to what we see in Scripture. So I don't think we're in disagreement on the role of experience. But here's the problem.
2: Here's the problem. If we disregard James' clear prescriptive command in James 5, that when you're sick, have the elders anoint you with oil, lay hands on you, and pray for you, you won't have the experience of being healed after having the elders lay hands on you and pray for you. So here's an experience, but it involves obedience in order for that experience to be
1: actualized. Guys, we're having fun. We're going to uh, continue this next time. We've gone a little bit over. Thanks for hanging with us a little bit longer than usual. Next week, we'll pick this back up and continue to talk about biblical arguments uh, for secessionism and for continuationism. For Tim, Sam, and JJ, this is Michael signing off.
0: You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads.
2: Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming
1: the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.